I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome to the snack episode. Hello. Today, we are going to talk about some more listener mail slash feedback. And I'm going to read um, the mail right now. <laughs> Dear introverts, I enjoy the podcast overall, but I also feel frustrated that the podcast sort of assumes that all veterinarians want to provide a specialist level of care or that all veterinarians should want to provide a specialist level of care. Since it features two general practice veterinary professionals, not specialists, I wish the podcast talked more about the type of treatment we can give in a general practice. These days, a lot of things are referred that can be handled in general practice, and this is a trend that I have seen increasing over the years. You don't have to have a lot of fancy drugs or equipment to run a successful practice and to help pets. If young vets don't learn to treat pets without all the bells and whistles that specialists have, they will only ever refer everything and they won't learn. Well, I guess my first question would be, what is the definition of specialty level care versus general practice care? I mean, I had a kind of a general idea in my brain, but I guess it's subjective. Yes, I agree. I think it's subjective. And I think it probably depends on a lot of factors, uh, especially maybe even like location, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I think specialist level of care is uh, is a subjective sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I agree. <laughs> mm. I agree. I mean, I'm trying to, you know, think back at our various cases and... I can kind of see where maybe maybe we should include more cases that where the owners have opted for more conservative treatment. But I feel like it doesn't really matter if you're in a uh, general practice or especially clinic because they can still opt to opt out of certain services. I don't, I don't know. That's something we can definitely do in the future to kind of be a little more well-rounded. but. Mm -hmm. I just I don't feel like necessarily that every case that we've gone over has, for my personal definition, been a specialty level. I think it was that the practicing veterinarian just offered what is like the most optimal type of treatment. And if they went for approving it, great. I don't know. What do you think? Well, to to go back really quickly to your comment about, you know, maybe we should do more general practice type cases or or more uh, cases in which the people decide not to do anything fancy. I think the only problem with that is that's a boring episode. <laughs> you <laughs> know, like be. it's like, I mean, what would that look like? Like, you know, like. We wanted to do an ultrasound. <laughs> yeah, like we we counseled the owner about how this cat could have GI disease, but they declined all the diagnostics, so we started steroid. Five yeah, it minutes. definitely would be a shorter episode. <laughs> right, like, <laughs> and like, also not interesting and not anything that people might not know. So, from like the creative standpoint and the delivering the podcast standpoint, like our goal 
is to educate people mm-hmm. and to present as accurate and as detailed of a review of the disease process as possible while using specific cases to illustrate that. So the goal of the podcast when we do clinical cases is to say, like, here is a real-life case. Most of them are not specialty cases, but general practice cases. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single specialty case that we've gone over actually. No. At all. Like I, I mean, I can't, I'm having trouble coming up with one. You know, all of them are general practice cases. And we, that's why we kind of break it up. So we, we kind of go through presentation, physical exam, we build our differential list. I mean, just like you do in real life. And then we talk about, here are all the tests that we could do. Here's what they did. Here are all the treatments that we could do. Here's what they did. And then we either have a positive or a negative outcome. So, Yeah, and I can also state that, I mean, I I assume I can state this. I know for a (laughs) fact that some of the cases that we have gone over have occurred at a clinic that does not have fancy equipment and fancy drugs. Sure, yeah. You, you know, that information can be in, taken however, but that's, anyway, that, that is right. the absolute gospel <laughs> truth. Yeah. I guess I have a lot of thoughts about this topic, and I, we're, we're going to go, we're going to talk about all of them today, all of our <laughs> thoughts about it and everything. So we do appreciate the feedback for sure, mm-hmm. and we'd like to talk about it while also trying to not be defensive about it, but sort of just to explain, like, here's our rationale for how we present cases, and here's why we think that's helpful, and here are some of the reasons why we think it would be a problem to limit the information that we share with listeners. Uh, So we're going to go over those things on the podcast today. Let's do it. (laughs) Uh, So first off... I would just like to make the statement that there is a difference between having all of the bells and whistles at the clinic that you're currently standing in and talking to the owner about all of the bells and whistles, right? Uh Like having the things you're recommending located on site is not a prerequisite for talking to the owner about those things. No, it's not. I mean, and I don't think it should be because... Say you are in a general practice that does have limited resources. I don't think that that means you can limit the information you give to the client. I think you have to go over all of the options with the client. And if they want to go with a limited plan, then great. But I don't think you need to present the limited plan as the only option that they have. Yeah. That, that's where I start having trouble. Yeah, because they were talking about how. They seem to see a trend of where more things are being referred out instead of done mm-hmm. being done in-house. But if it's not in the pet's best interest to offer only what you have to offer, then who are you doing a favor by that? It just, I don't know. It just, it opens up a lot of cans of worms, in my opinion. So I will say that that aspect of the feedback is the one that bugs me the most. Uh, is like this this idea like, oh, younger vets just want to refer everything. They don't want to work it up. And I don't think that's true. I think that 
younger veterinarians might be more aware of the liability of not talking to owners about the options that they have before Mm -hmm. they start working it up. And I also have a little bit of a like a moral issue with an with the idea that like you should do everything you possibly can at your physical practice before you send it someplace mm-hmm. um, because everything you physically can do at your practice might not be an appropriate thing to do for this case. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, absolutely. Oh, you know, like, yeah. And it may be different in like generations. Cause I mean, Oh, it's for sure. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you think about, you know, what 20 30 years ago you didn't have social media where people are bashing your clinic because of their perceived wrongdoing so that's even on cases where you haven't done anything wrong but if you did not offer all the possibilities and then they find out that you know I could have had a better outcome if I had been offered a b and c instead of just c then they've got a leg to stand on to go after you. And mm-hmm. it's it's not fun being on the receiving end of that. So maybe not everybody thinks about that uh, possibility. That and, I don't know, just seems like the, the, the graduating veterinarians that come out now are a little bit different than the ones that were coming out 20, 30 years ago. They have different interests and they don't always want to go with what you know, the owner of the practice is like, you must do this. They're, they they seem to have more of a mind of their own, <laughs> which is a good thing in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, so, you know, uh, it's been a minute since I've been in veterinary school, but even back then, I definitely feel like it was ingrained in us that, you know, you as an individual veterinarian are not going to be good at everything. And uh, if you're not good at something, you know, you that uh, you shouldn't subject the pet to it Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like there's a difference between trying really hard and being good at something and so like or learning about something and still and being good at it like just because i know things about horse medicine doesn't mean i need to go out and practice horse medicine because it's legal for me to or whatever like no Mm -hmm. i don't want to put the horse in danger so i'm not going to do that and i think this the same thing is true with aspects of small animal medicine too so like you know if you don't have the equipment to get the right diagnosis and to treat that appropriately then you really need to talk with the client about that information before you just go doing it like i'm not saying you can't move forward with a procedure or make an empirical diagnosis but before you do those things the client needs to be on the same page with you about like, hey, we actually haven't done everything. Um, We've done everything we can do here. And those are different things. I need to go ahead and give you some information about what we could do potentially some other place. I think that's for me, that's the turning thing. That's the that's the cornerstone of this of this argument here is that, you know, these young vets don't want to do anything anymore or whatever. Uh, Is it that? Or is it they've they've been trained to offer things and more clients than you thought want to go with referral? Mm-hmm. Because that's those are different things happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are different things. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I guess I I really feel like 
The question to refer should always be the pet owner's decision, and it's hard for them to make that decision if they're not aware that referral is an option. And Mm -hmm. if they're not aware that the referral institution isn't like a cookie cutter image of your same practice, you know, like they're going to have different things. They have different talents. They have different machines. They probably have different medication. Maybe they're open 24 hours. You know, they just have a different level of care. So clients need to know that. Mm -hmm. And then taking the owner's goals into account, I think, is super important. So this can be done in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the most interesting things uh, um, that I've seen, and I actually hadn't thought about this for years, and we were talking about like this feedback and starting to make this episode, <laughs> I was telling JJ, like, man, you know, when I was a student in Auburn, I had a cat and I took her to the veterinarian and the veterinarian I took her to in Auburn had a really interesting questionnaire in the paperwork that you filled out to be established as a new client. And it was a questionnaire about your goals. And it literally had a question where it wanted you to circle, like, rank, what do you want the veterinarian to recommend? Like, or what level of care do you want to be provided for your pets? And it was different options, like, I want the veterinarian to talk to me about every abnormality they see and what they recommend for that. I am not worried about cost. And then it had like a middle option. And then it had an option that was like, I only want shots. Like, you know, don't talk to me about anything or whatever, you know? (laughs) And I remember when I got that, of course I circled the I want to know everything and I, please don't worry about money or whatever. Just tell me everything I need to do. And I remember thinking like, why would anyone pick any of these other options? (laughs) That's how I'm not, that's how naive I was, (laughs) you know, like, But I've actually never seen that at any other practice. Me either. But it's very interesting. And actually, I like it because at least you know, like you have a jumping off point there. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, this is the level of care that this client wants. So you can come in and then say, I see Fluffy's having some concerning symptoms. Now, when we got established as a client, you let me know that, You kind of don't want to do any really expensive sort of things. Now, is that still how you feel? Okay, okay. Well, let me talk to you about some inexpensive ways that we might be able to diagnose and treat this. But just know there's some other things that we are kind of omitting because they're in the category of things that you said you didn't want to do. So if your goals change, we need to know because that would change our recommendations. You know, like that's a very interesting thing to do. Mm -hmm. I do kind of wonder how legally defensible it is from a malpractice standpoint but i mean i i don't know i mean it's it's maybe at least a good way to to know where the client is coming from yeah i feel like it's a good way of you know kind of taking the temperature on that but if it was the option of i don't want to hear about anything i feel like you still have to tell them like well we did find this today Mm -hmm. um we recommend like say you found grade three calculus and you know, a huge trash mouth. Well, we do recommend that you have dentistry on your dog. We can't make you do it, but we also have to tell you about it. Right. So, Yeah. Sometimes I feel like owners don't want to hear about issues that you find mm -hmm. because they know that they can't do anything about it and they don't want to feel. They feel like we're guilt tripping them or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, look, I, I don't ever, if I'm going over like a treatment plan, I'm never like, I always want to tell them, like, I'm not going to judge you if you say, you know what, I can't afford this. Because, I mean, I've been in that situation. I get it. 
it sucks because you, you know, a, lot, a lot of people want to be able to do some of the stuff, but it's not practical for them. And I would rather them be honest about that than just say, yes, do it. And then they show up and they have no money. Or they say, yes, do it. Or if they say, you know what, I don't ever want to hear about this again. Don't don't talk to me about this because I'm just not going to do it. I'm like, you know, be up front and just say, I, I wish I could do it, but I can't. Or I can't right now, maybe in a couple months. You know, that's always an option. And it's never, I'm not going to sit there and say, you know, you're a bad person because you're not scheduling this today. That's not the case. Uh, you know, and I think one way that you can kind of work around that is to say, hey, I understand that doing something about the things I'm about to go over doesn't fit with your goals, but legally I do need to review them with you. So I'd like to do that quickly right now, or I can go ahead and write them up and um, give them to you in a document or send them to you in a document and you can look over it when you can. Right. Mm -hmm. I feel like you've mm -hmm. legally covered yourself there. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's something that I employ a lot when I'm experiencing a lot of resistance from a client and they just like won't even let me get through the exam findings. Then I'll just, <laughs> I've just started jumping straight to that. It sounds like you're very hesitant to have me tell you about the abnormalities I'm seeing. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah, I understand. Okay. I do need to talk to you about them just from a legal standpoint, but I can do that in writing. Would that be preferable? Okay, great. I'll prepare that and send it to you via email, you know, like, mm -hmm. because like, I don't, I don't want to bash my head against the wall all day. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like I just, uh, yeah. but I, so I think, you know, as long as you're having that conversation, but um, anyway, we got kind of off topic a little bit, but so mm. some additional thoughts that I had just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Okay. And then I think you always have to ask yourself, where do you draw the line between trying something out that's new and putting a patient at risk. And and I think that the pet owner is the person that needs to decide that. You have to be aware of litigation like we've been talking about. And I think it's fine for young vets to try new things without all the bells and whistles, as long as they're honest with both themselves and the pet owner about the limitations and risks of doing so. And as long as, you know, the option of referral, if that's what, you know, would be needed, it has been discussed with the owner. Yeah. And those opportunities will arise because mm -hmm. there's always going to be somebody that's like, I would like for this to be done here. Is there a way that we can, you know, tweak this to where we can do it as cheaply as possible? Or as long as it's something that's, you know, the veterinarian is comfortable with offering and they, the owner has listed things as declined, they know what they're getting into. I mean, those options, those those things occur quite often. Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote down a couple of examples that sort of came to me while I was thinking about this topic. So the first example I thought of was, you know, I don't prefer to diagnose and treat dyspneic patients without the ability to put them in an oxygen cage and the ability to do an ultrasound of the chest to see what's happening. Now, can I technically treat them? Yeah, mm -hmm. sure. I did it for years, right? I did. Mm -hmm. I worked for years without ultrasound and without an oxygen cage. <laughs> I did it all the time. But things have changed. And now I know that right up the road are at least two, if not more, different facilities that have both oxygen cage and ultrasound, right? Mm -hmm. So is it right for me to not mention that those things exist and that they would be the best care just so that I can keep the pet 
in clinic, I don't think that is right. I don't think that's right. So I always say if I'm at a clinic, if I'm at a clinic that day where um, we don't have oxygen for the pet and we don't have uh, an ultrasound and, you know, the pet's doing real bad and I'm like, heck, you know, take an x-ray. This pet's going to kill it. So, like, you know, we're looking at uh, hoping that it's um, pulmonary edema given some furosemide or you know, stabbing blindly into the chest to check and see if it's, uh, you know, got a pleural effusion. Like, man, using an ultrasound can clear that up real fucking quick. So, mm-hmm. like, um, before I do those other two things, like, I probably at least need to mention to the owner, like, hey, in a perfect world, we would do an ultrasound and I don't have one. So before you drive all the way up here with your pet, just know that the emergency clinic or blah, blah, blah is an option. And they do have those things. So if your pet needs oxygen, if your pet needs an ultrasound of the chest, we can't do it here, right? Like sometimes you don't know that a dyspneic pet is coming in until they arrive. And then you're like, oh, shit. But like, you know, you can all there's always an, a possibility for disclosure. Mm-hmm. I, there, there always is across the board. And then another example that I thought of was something like doing a GDV surgery in general practice. So, like, do most general practices have everything they need to do a GDV? I mean, technically, sure. Yeah, they've got maybe a clean surgical suite. They've got appropriate instruments. They've got good drugs, pain control, that sort of thing. But do they have a technician that can serve as an ICU nurse and monitor the pet nonstop as it recovers? Do they have telemetry to monitor for premature ventricular contractions? It's a really common problem after GDB surgery. Mm-hmm. And if you see them, then we've got to give the pet medication for that. But it's medication that not all clinics have or know how to mix up. So is it right then <laughs> if I don't have the, the, the equipment to monitor for a known complication or treat the known complication is it right for me to do the surgery? You know, no. I don't think it is right without telling the owner it could happen and that I can't do anything about it if it does, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, mm-hmm. right. Like, <laughs> so in that type of a case, I think if you just take that dog straight back to surgery without thinking about what are the aftercare needs that it has, what, you know, what can we do to make it the best outcome possible? Do I have those things? If the answer is no, I think that it, it's ethically your duty to tell the owner, hey, I don't have all of the things that would make this the best pe- the best case scenario. And I'm happy to still do the surgery, but I just need to make you aware of the limitations of doing it here. And if the owner's okay with that, then great, go right ahead. But if they're not, like we don't need to disguise the fact that another clinic can offer better care so that we can retain the client because that is unethical, I yeah. think. How do you feel about, uh, like, say, for instance, uh, the vet opts to do the surgery, but then immediately transfer it to a clinic for aftercare? Well, I mean, I think there are are places where that's done and there's pros and cons to that, too. And as long as the owner is made aware of those pros and cons, okay, you know, but like, how far is the drive? You know, like, (laughs) how much are we going to recover the pet before we send it? You know, if you're trying to rush at the end of the day to do a GDV at 5 p.m. just so that you can wake it up and then send it straight to the ER, like, did you really do the best service for the pet by doing that? Would the pet have been better served by, you know, you doing a decompression and sending it to the ER so that it could be stabilized adequately for surgery and then recover in the same place? You see Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, 
Yeah. I don't have all the answers to those questions, but I think it's wrong to not think about them first. Mm-hmm. And it's wrong to not talk about those things with the owner. If the owner is like, no, I definitely want you to do the surgery because you can do it for half the price as the other place. I understand that there's going to be a period of time where he can't be on telemetry till he gets to the ER, but I'm willing to accept that risk. Okay. Fine. You know, like the owner knows, like Mm -hmm. they're the ones that need to make that decision, though. Not uh, we don't need to withhold information, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Those are my that's my personal philosophy. So and that's part of the reason why I think it's so important to go over um, as many of the options as possible in our case reports, because, I mean, we we have a broad audience. We have. People who want to be vets, high school students, we've got veterinary technicians, we've got veterinarians, veterinary specialists listens to our podcast, you know, like, you know, we want to make sure that we're providing correct, complete information. And then what people do with that, that is up to them. But I don't think that we should limit the amount of information we provide because it might make people uncomfortable. (laughs) So I think in making decisions about whether... Whether I can handle this case in general practice or whether I need to think about referring it, I don't I don't necessarily have like a list of like always keep these things, always refer these things. I think that it's more nuanced than that. So I like to ask myself a list of questions when I'm thinking about whether I need to offer referral to a patient. Okay, so this is just the short list to ask myself. You might need to edit this or add things. Uh, depending on your unique situation. But so those questions are, do I have the right equipment and is it working correctly? Do I have a what-if plan for known common complications that occur with this type of procedure? Do I feel comfortable proceeding or am I hesitant for some reason? I'm going to tell you right now, if I'm hesitant, I ain't doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I've been pressured too many times to do stuff that I wasn't comfortable with. And every single time I'm like, I should have listened to my gut on this. This is a pain (laughs) in the ass. This is a nightmare. Okay. Yeah. So if I feel hesitant, I'm like, I'm not doing it. (laughs) Mm -mm, Not going to do it. And then can I ensure patient comfort, like with heat support, with pain control, with nausea control? Again, there are likely others, but these are just the ones that I ask myself. And if I'm like, eh, no, no, I don't think I do have the right equipment. Or if I'm coming up with the wrong answer to those questions, then I know I need to start kind of chatting with the owner about like what their other options are. Doesn't mean I won't do it necessarily, except Mm -hmm. for the third thing. If I'm hesitant, I won't do it. But everything (laughs) else, it doesn't mean I won't do it. It's just like I got to make sure that the owner and I are on the same page about what could happen and that, you know, they've at least been counseled on the potential outcomes. Because, you know, every practice can't have everything. I think in veterinary medicine, there is a lot of unnecessary duplication of services. And it's part of, uh, in my opinion, what's stifling and has historically stifled profits in the veterinary practice. Um, I I don't think that you can have 25 clinics in one city that all do the exact same things as one another. Like, that doesn't make any sense. But that's what we've been doing so far. I, I think it's dumb. Uh, I think that differentiation is a smart move in this veterinary climate. And then it's important to remember that standards change over time. And then 
laws usually change. They lag behind a little bit, but they usually change over time, too. And some good examples I thought of were like x-ray machines. In the state of Alabama, you're required to have an x-ray machine in your practice. And if you don't or you don't want to provide that service, you have to have like a legal contract with another facility that can provide x-rays and like provide that information to the board before you can get a premise permit. And like, you know, back in the day, (laughs) there were fights about that, right? Like Mm -hmm. back in the day, they wouldn't have made that law if there weren't a subset of veterinarians who were like, ah, this newfangled x-rays. I'm not fucking doing these Mm -hmm. (laughs) x-rays. Like, uh, (laughs) pain control is a good example. You know, 20 plus years ago, pain control was almost non-existent in veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. And now it's, you know, definitely pain control for surgeries is the standard of care. Unfortunately, I see a lot of people not rising to that standard of care, but yeah. but it is the standard of care. And then, you know, it, even stuff like dosing steroids changes over time. Like, we don't use these huge, gigantic steroid doses anymore like they did 20 years ago without even batting an eye because we know that it can cause problems, so... Um, the pain control example is uh, something that I have definitely, I've, I've seen the, the the change in it because I, I can remember the first job I had, there was no pain control. Heck, I remember when Remedil first came out and that was like, it was mainly strictly just kind of like used for arthritis treatment, but they were marketing it for after surgical pain as well or post-surgical pain and i can remember like some of the was like oh it just seems like something extra to charge the owner for they probably don't want it and then it started you know in the next clinic i worked at i remember they went from doing just post-op and NSAIDs to starting doing pre-op pain medication with buprenorphine and like all the and you definitely saw changes in their recovery I can remember when they first started using the buprenorphine ahead of time, the recoveries were so much better. Did they take a little longer sometimes to wake up or get fully alert? Sure. But, I mean, it's way better than (laughs) some of the other recoveries that you had to deal with. So I do wish that across the board, everybody got on board with pain control. And I do really feel strongly that as a Uh, a vet tech or a vet assistant advocating for your patient because you're the ones that are watching them wake up from surgery most of the time. So if you feel like they need extra pain control, speak up for them because they can't talk. So it's great if you have a great relationship with your doctor and you feel comfortable doing it, even if you don't feel comfortable doing it, at least you said something and helps you sleep a little better at night. But Mm -hmm. that one is just an example that I've had personal experience with since I was a baby tech until now. One of the main things that uh, we want to touch on in this episode is the idea of establishing standard of care policies and procedures for your practice. And I think that this plays right into the feedback that we received. And I think that this is a way that everyone can sort of examine, you know, what their mission is in practice, what they plan to offer. And then set a standard for the practice of what level of care are we going to provide? What's typical? What's not typical? What are we, what have we decided we're going to do in X, Y, and Z situations? 
And I think that that this is a very helpful exercise to go through. It helps you learn a lot about yourself, but it also establishes really important information for the clinic. Uh, It can help it function a lot better, too. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about standard of care policies for practices in various episodes, but I'd like to go through right now just how do you do that? How do you set those up? How do you have that conversation? And the first step is to start with developing a mission statement. If your hospital doesn't have a mission statement yet, you need to write one. You need to write one. And that way we know what is the goal of the care that we're providing here. Because how can you know what level of care you're going to provide if you don't know what your goal is? So first, write that mission statement. And then all of the veterinarians need to be on board with that veterinary mission statement, that goal. And that's going to help you guys set expectations as far as level of care. From there, you can develop written policies and procedures for your specific practice. What all needs to be in that document? Well, in short, if it's important, it needs to be written down. And not only just what the policies and procedures are, but why you have created them this way. Adding that rationale allows people to come back later and say, oh, Well, the rationale on this is outdated. We now have new information. This needs to be updated. And it doesn't just become a, quote, this is how we've always done it sort of a situation. The standard of care always evolves over time, and so should your standard practices at your hospital. Um, But even though things are going to evolve, they still need to be written down. Just update them regularly. Mm -hmm. When you're going into meetings about standard of care, we want to first not be defensive. And then we want to approach it with a listening mindset. And that's not listening so that you can then respond, but listening to understand where the other veterinarians are coming from. So how you could do that as the administrator is to sit down with your veterinarians individually or in a group and spend 15 or 20 minutes saying, hey, what is the most important thing to you? What are some things that you are are bothered by? What are your pet peeves and where do you think we can improve? Then talk about those things and why. And then it's really important to come up with some sort of language or wording that makes everybody comfortable. You might need to outline exceptions to the rule and things like that as well. This is not the type of document that you can really compile in one sitting. Uh, This is going to take some time to develop. And and again, it's like a it's not like a set in stone chiseled tablet sort of thing. It's like Mm -hmm. an organic living document that's always going to keep changing. I recommend focusing on just one area at a time. So make a triage list of everything that needs to be dealt with and then just start, make a policy for the most important thing and just one thing at a time. And then it'll grow from there and it won't take long before you really have a set of core uh, values that have been established. And if any of the veterinarians are really opposed to any of those things, then you need to really have that conversation and examine why is there a disconnect And it might ultimately be that there's not a good match in the level of care. And, you know, one of those vets might even need to move on. It might not be a good fit. But if you don't have the conversation, you're never going to know. And it's just going to lead to resentment and irritation. Mm -hmm. I think that there's definitely a place in veterinary medicine for clinics that provide limited services and or low cost clinics. Uh, But communication is key. We want to disclose our limitations to the client. And I think that there should be some information in 
the written standards and practices uh, for the hospital about how that information is relayed to the public. Is it through advertising? Do you maybe make the statement on the phone when a new owner calls? You know, like, what are we going to do if we're a vaccine-only clinic? How are we going to let the owners know, hey, we only do vaccines. (laughs) You're going to have to have a regular vet for your other stuff Mm because that's important for them to know. And then lastly, don't forget that many organizations offer consensus statements on best practices, and you can definitely use these as a blueprint for your own practice guidelines. So just off the top of my head, AHA and the Association of Feline Practitioners both put out vaccination guidelines that they update regularly. The vaccination guidelines have been updated in 2020. That happened while the pandemic was going on, so a lot of people don't know. So go take a look. There's a lot of big changes to that vaccination recommendation document, including a recommendation that pets be vaccinated not any more often than every three years for a lot of the core vaccines, including rabies, including distemper parvo, Mm -hmm. including FERCP. Not one or three years, but not any more often often than every three years. So reading that data is really interesting. Uh, I really encourage everybody to check out those guidelines. The American Heart Society uh, publishes guidelines about treatment. The Companion Animal Parasite Council publishes guidelines about how to respond to infections with different intestinal parasites and things like that. So you don't have to always use these as like a Bible for what to do, but they... um, present a really good jumping off point for you to get started. Uh, You can look and see, okay, well, a consensus of specialists says this. I got to have a pretty good reason to go against that. What's going to be my rationale here? And then I did just want to go over some key things that I've seen, uh, you know, in my work as a relief vet. I can say that not many places have established written standards, and you can tell because, you know, when I come in as a relief fit, uh, the owner is not usually there. Office manager might not even have one, you know. So when I'm saying, hey, what is your policy about deworming puppies? And people say, oh, just whatever you want to do. That frustrates me because I know that deworming puppies is a pet peeve of many veterinarians, right? So I know <laughs> that they this practice has then set me up to... I get a call from the owner like, hey, I saw you did it this way. I like to do it this way instead. And so if you provide written communication to that effect, that's much better. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you have really specific expectations for how things are going to go and you have really specific expectations for how you want the vets that work for you to treat certain things, but you don't communicate them or write them down, You're setting yourself up to be irritated when those vets invariably don't do it exactly the way you want because you haven't told them how you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Additionally, if it's written down, people have something to refer back to. So you don't get 1000 questions a day that you feel like you should, you know, those people should be able to answer because they've been working there a long time. Just write it down. And if they come to you with one of those questions, you can say, have you checked the manual? No. Please go check the manual. That's going to be what my answer is. You know, it'll save a lot of time, too. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all the time we have for today. If you have stories, questions, concerns, or cases that you'd like for us to present, please send them to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media 
We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at Introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.